The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Valerie, her guests, and callers. Now here's your host, Valerie Kirkgaard. I am your host. I am here. I am delighted to be here. If you're at our website, wakingupatamerica.com, and you see the same picture on the site last week and this week, that is because we got into such an interesting discussion last week that I had to have them come back. And the, the they that I had to have come back are Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould. And the more you talk to this intriguing, intriguing married couple, the more you find out that there's layers upon layers upon layers of the conversations that we've been having. And I hope you're as intrigued as I am because I've been having a terrific time with these people. We're in our 22nd year on the radio, so you can imagine that some great things have happened. Another great thing that's happened is that Gail Ellen, who's in charge of international protocol and also beauty for the radio show Waking Up in America, is able to join us today and her presence may be snagged away from us by a fire alarm <laughs> drill. So we do what we do. We're in our homes and offices all over the United States at this moment having this program happen. And I'm just totally delighted to be here. If you want to ask a question while we're on the air, send me an email at val, V-A-L, at wakingupinamerica.com. That's val at wakingupinamerica.com. Now, to get stuff started off here, um, let's start with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. So you put your hand over your heart and you say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic, underline republic, and go look that up in the dictionary and see what the difference is between republic and democracy, for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'm Dr. Val Kirkgaard, and in 19... 19- 84, I carried the Olympic torch, and once that kind of flame gets ignited, you can't stop. Gail can't stop carrying her torch. Paul <laughs> and Liz can't stop carrying their torches, and that's because we're actually living our lives exactly the way we're supposed to be living our lives, and that's the fun of it. So I'm inviting you to live your, your life, and I'm inviting you to light your torch, and I'm inviting you to stand up um, and give us your mission and 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 take on this wonderful one life that we have and do something spectacular with it. Our guests have always reflected these values all the way from Dennis Kucinich, congressman a couple weeks ago, to Senator Alan Cranston, to Willie Nelson, to J.J. Version, to Mary Louise Zeller, the Taekwondo champion, to Master Junry, all the people that show up at Waking Up in America in their destiny. We actually... Um, Used to have an astrologer on the show. I've not found anybody as good. That's why we don't have another one <clears throat> by the name of Jim Marshall. And I would do all I would do is give Jim the the um, birth information on the guests, and he would start talking to them for about two or three minutes during the middle of the show. And he even told this one guy that he had a library. And another time he was talking to Dennis Weaver, and you could hear Jerry Weaver, Dennis's wife, in the background going, 
I told you so. I told you so. I told you so, Dennis. Jim had him nailed, and I suspect that people that live are, or in their destinies, a lot of it shows up in their astrological charts. Now, over here, you're dealing with the fact that, that I am a Leo fire dragon. I mean, there's no getting around the fact that I have to talk to and have relationships and do things that cause the, my world to emerge and to be a part of the world, and I probably have a superhero complex. I mean, listen, Paul, do you feel like you're a hero already? I, mean, I don't mean in the bad sense of it, but like you're compelled to do good. Well, I find that a lot of times, um, you know, people really are inspired by what we've done. I think that would be, uh, you know, and, but it really took a long time, I think. There was actually quite a long haul where people really wondered what we were doing. So you do have to live through, I think, a lot of the, why are you still doing that? What's so important? Why are you obsessed with that? So what, I think you need to tell our listeners, and also Gail wasn't able to be on the first program with us, what it is that um, you believe is your destiny and what you've done. And I'd love to hear from both of you, and then Gail, jump in wherever you want. Well, that that's a huge that's a huge question. We got two books right now. Right. You right. could maybe narrow it down to your right. books. Well, and which... it, it, I think that um, you know when I when when we first started off on on our course together, you know, Paul and I got married in 1977, and we really just sort of naturally decided we wanted to work together, and so I think part of our destiny was to do that, and I think that that is part of what we are really bringing to this. Complexity, and maybe that's part of the reason why we have a level of complexity that seems now to be very important because we figured out a way to work together and we bring such a different uh, perspective. I mean, Paul likes, you know, has come up with an idea. He said, You're like the right brain, meaning Liz. Liz is like the right brain, and, and Paul is like the left brain. And we're figuring out how to communicate and how to exchange ideas and how to come to some kind of, a, of not just a, uh, a point of an idea, but then how to act on the idea. So you've got the two components that have to be integrated together. And that takes a long time to, to work through just the personal relationship stuff. So you've been working on that since 79. No, we've been working on that since 1970. <laughs> 1970. We met in 1970. Oh, in 1970. And, Paul, uh, where, where are you at all this conversation? <clears throat> well, I, I'm kind of the opposite in terms of personality to Liz. I mean, people meet us. It's interesting over the years. People message us. You're so alike. You get along so well together. But we have to explain. We're, we're almost the diametric opposites. I mean, I was born in January. Liz was born in July. I'm, I'm definitely, I mean, she's the, you know, the kind of, Free thinker, she comes up, but she ideates ideas that I would never in a million years think about. I'm I'm much more of the organizational seize, clear, hold, and build guy. You know, I'm the I'm the guy who goes in and I'm, I played football when I was uh, you know younger, and I <clears throat> could have played it in college, but decided to run track instead, and that's when I met Liz. And uh, I, I was always I'm always looking at measurements. I'm looking at you know how. How long it's going to take me to get something done? What can I what can I uh, hope to accomplish in such a period of time, et cetera, et cetera? So, so I'm the um, you know I'm the I'm the uh, I'm the quantitative guy, and, and Liz is the qualitative aspect of this relationship. So that's, so you, that's the way I'd say it. You guys are known as experts uh, in the issues in Afghanistan, and also experts on. Um, gosh, I don't want to say conspiracy theory. Um, because I, I think that sounds too kind of freakish or quackish, but really what you're doing is you're painting a historical picture and showing 
how what is occurring today is is not a new thought that it's actually been going on since Plato or per, before even perhaps, huh? Well, no, there's no question that um, you know that what I think what we're really looking at, and and I've even come to the point where. I view a conspiracy really as simply not having enough information. That's all. You just okay. that's a frustrated person. You know, when you get to a point where you know something's going on and you haven't got enough information. Well, at this point, we really have uh, absorbed so much of how things become so mangled, you know, in terms of the way in which it, it ends up being presented to the public that, you know, we've really sort of gone beyond the idea that conspiracy can really um, address the, 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 the very complex nature of this interaction that results in, in the kind of confusion that we have today. Well, like to, I, I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons we have the kind of confusion that we have today is because what Gail stands for. Gail, you there? I am. Gail stands for Art and Beauty, and she stands for International Relations. And I've noticed that civilizations seem to fall when art and beauty is disregarded or considered unimportant. And I, well, I was Gail. I was wondering if you wanted to comment on that at all. Well, I think that's true, and I think that that's part of what brought Rome down. But I would just like to say that uh, who Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould are actually is a husband and wife team. For our uh, new listeners, because they began, they're journalists and they began their experience in Afghanistan in 1981 for CBS News. And they were there producing a documentary, uh, Afghanistan Between Three Worlds, for PBS. And then they returned to the U.S. for ABC Nightline and they've contributed to the McNair Lair News Hour. Uh, so their research and uh, their um, experience has been going on here for a, a long time. Yeah, really. So they're very serious journalists, and um, uh, you know they they actually have this great perspective. Well, if we go back to you know what what Gail's saying here and and mentioning your great perspective, I was very interesting to go to Grailworks, and that's G R A I L W E R K S dot com, and read your commentary. Oh, take that S out, railwork.com. And also, um, in reference to Afghanistan, go to invisiblehistory.com. When you go to those two things, you start to think perhaps in a different way. It's like, I'm not going to call myself a revolutionary, but I certainly know I was a member of the feminist movement, and I've taken changes in America very seriously over the years. And as I begin to study things, I go, oh, well, this mess goes back to the Rothschilds, or this mess, I was a French-English history major, French-English-Chinese history major. So then I could see where some of it went back to 1066, and so on and so forth. So I have a probably a larger span of how things develop than most people. But I would have to say I never romped around much with Plato. <laughs> and, and what you're talking about here, as, as, as I look at the lineage, and I don't know if you saw that too, Gail, when you were looking, I mean, this definitely does go back to Plato. And I, there was a, a reference in your materials to Illusion Mysteries and a secret society that he belonged to. Mm-hmm. What is that? I don't know what an Illusion is. Well, I mean, you, you have all of these. The Plato is supposedly, you know, only the, the last of what were considered to be the, the very ancient mysteries. 
that you know it's been alleged that there were um, that the pyramids are far older than we you know think of them to be. That the striations on the uh, on the Sphinx, as an example, are not are, are not the result of wind; that they're the result of water. That uh, there was a um, you know before the last ice age, that there was a a worldwide community, an Atlantean community that existed on the planet, that had a pan you know that that had a religion that panned the the the, the entire uh, planet. And so this was uh, you know Plato used to refer to Atlantis, I believe, in one of his works. Really. Yeah, he talked about Atlantis and, and the society that lived there and what had brought them down, how their technology had ultimately destroyed them and that because of their hubris. They're, they're, they were not capable of, of, of handling the kind of uh, advanced technology that they had developed themselves. So, you know, you see the parallels between that. You see the way it's the thinking, you know. Uh, well, I, you say that. <laughs> it's, it's very funny you say that. And I'm going to tell you, I read the Course of Miracles every day, okay? Lesson 281, Paul, The Course of Miracles. And I actually tagged this for this radio show. And I don't do that. I don't read it that much. But some days it just seems so perfect. Lesson 281 is, I can be hurt by nothing but my thoughts. It says, I will not hurt myself today, for I am far beyond all pain. My Father placed me safe in heaven watching over me, and I will not attack, for um, his love is also mine to love. But it's like, I, I was very aware, as because I, I read this first thing this morning as I started to go through the material, that we do create this with our thoughts. There's some guy on Facebook right now, you two, who's actually asking people if Obama should be assassinated and how they should do it. I heard about that, yeah. But it's disgusting. Right. But, you know, you, this is probably one of, of the effects, though, of instant communication. It isn't that those kinds of ideas may not have been in the system at some point but now they're literally out there public and spread around the world the minute it happens now you get an individual like that it's not just in their head in their room by themselves <laughs> or just between them and their dog you know it's actually ca- they're capable of actually putting it online and getting it out there now i'll tell you something interesting gail and i do you remember her donnie ditmars gail yeah um dancing in the no-fly zone are you guys familiar with her book no, I don't think so. She's a oh, Canadian well. journalist. She's a Canadian journalist, extremely well-versed in Iraq, okay? And what, this is one of the reasons why I told Gail I really wanted her on the show today. Uh, I asked Hadani how she thought the Iraqis had stood the terror and horror of what went on over there, and she said, first of all, you probably don't know, or you may or may not know this, but the Iraqis were incredibly cultured people. And when they were, even when they were being bombed, they were at the theater with, if there was no electricity, with candles, you know, that, that they needed those things for their souls to continue. And that I said, well, how do you manage stepping over bodies when you go out in the street and such? And she said, what we did at night was we closed the curtains and we turned on music and we danced. Hmm. Literally, that they created a different world right. mm-hmm. or a cultured world or a higher value to actually go by. And as, as we go through the ter- terrible, challenging things that we're going through, what Gail stands for, to me, is the highest frequency. Mm-hmm. You know, and how do we bring that frequency to all of these different things that we're struggling with? Well, I think, you know, self-awareness is very much an aspect of it. I mean, I, I, we know people who, you know, who, who consider themselves to be experts in consciousness. And, I mean, personally, I, I, I wouldn't, 
describe these people as being conscious at all on, on a certain <laughs> level because of their, their, I, I think both Liz and I are very, you know, earth-connected as well as, uh, you know, spiritually connected. And I think that we, we have decided to make our own, uh, you know, uh, our own connection from this planet to the larger consciousness. And, and that's given us our own, our own channels of communications. Uh, that's how we were able to put this book out as an example, Invisible History. As you mentioned, the, the term earlier, conspiracy theory. I, I, I think conspiracy theory is a level of understanding that there is something going on that you don't understand or that you don't know about. And I think that there are... Um, there are larger processes at work that we just simply fall into. As an example, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm, I like to say is that we were all products of either World War II or the Cold War. We've all grown up with a mentality of, of defensiveness and the shell that was imposed upon us psychologically. My father was in World War II. He was gone for two years. Liz's father welded Liberty ships in, in uh, Brooklyn Harbor, uh, we were all impacted by by that event, that huge event, in many many ways. And everybody we know was was my brothers and sisters are still affected by. Uh, I was a post war baby, but my brothers and sisters are, are still affected by the fact that my father was gone for two years. And uh, I, I see these pictures in the paper of these of these women who are now in the military and their and their kids longing to you know to see them and not being able to communicate with them. And, and I can't imagine the long term effects, psychological effects and spiritual effects that that's going to have on those kids. So, I mean, you know, you have to think of that. What we need to do is we need to rethink. We almost need to wind back the clock. We need a kind of time machine where we can go back to December 7th, 1941, and then relook at the, all the data. That's Pearl Harbor Day, right? That's Pearl Harbor Day. Relook at all the data that we've been given and the way in which we've been given it from a new perspective. I think perhaps that's the easiest thing that people can do is shift their perspective to somebody else's shoes. We did that when we went to Afghanistan. We didn't know anything about Afghanistan specifically when we went there. We had a, a few ideas about what it was. But when we actually got there and we met the people and we spoke with them and we, we looked at their faces and we looked at them eye to eye, I mean, even officials of the government that were underneath the, that were, you know, they were, they were occupied by the Soviet army. And they would look at us and they would say, look, we'd rather have a relationship with the United States. Nobody wants an invading army in their country. And this was, of course, you know, this was uh, 30 years ago that they were telling us this. Well, here, you know, the United States and NATO has been in there for, you know, for eight years now, and they're saying the same thing about us. Right. So, uh, what do you, you mean know, they're saying the same thing? The, 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 uh, the Afghan people are saying the same thing at this point. I mean, if, if we had gone in, they assumed that we were going to go in there in friendship, that we were going to help them really sincerely establish... So we become oppressors as well, that's what you're saying, right? Well, unfortunately, I don't think... I think Washington does what Washington does. I know everyone is afraid that, that um, Afghanistan is going to become a, a Vietnam quagmire. Well, I, I, you know, my, my feeling about it is, is that the United States does Vietnam everywhere. The fact is, is that where it works, it's not a quagmire. When the United States goes into some place and you know, and creates a client state and gets, uh, you know, gets a client government to work with it and puts in, you know, American-friendly businesses, et cetera, et cetera, it's fine. No problems occur. Uh, no, no, no Americans complain. No Americans. Even, no, it's not the country. The country the doesn't Americans. complain. The indigenous population yeah, yeah. complains right, plenty right, about right, right. it. But the, but the United States doesn't complain about it, you know. They're considered to be a good ally. 
But, uh, I mean, look what happened in, uh, in Chile back in the early 1970s. That was a clear case. I, I just read something this morning about uh, Milton Friedman uh, going in there and using that as an experiment for how they could open up, you know, laissez, re, renew laissez-faire economics and get rid of Keynesian economics. And okay, is there anybody in the world that has money besides the warriors? Well, the reason I think the warriors, you know, have the money is because uh, the, the, the economy is controlled by warriors. Exactly. So war, but, but just remember, though, a war economy, you know, really is a demand economy. And I think that what, what you're looking at in this country is, is you know, one of the reasons that, that we're going so much into the war is because in order for the, the you know, the war economy to be able to keep demanding the economy, they need a war. So okay, so but let's just stop here for a moment because this is going to just be more of what else has been going on for the last few thousand years, okay? How do we take, because the things I've noticed that always disappear are physical education and um, art and beauty. Those are the things that always seem to disappear. And every time I talk to people that have somehow made it through, they all found a way to bring art or beauty or something of that frequency back into their life, even including you guys, all of you. I don't know if you know this. There's a, the, um, the chancellor of Germany a number of years back started playing classical music in one of the really terrible sections of town. And within two months, that town was transformed. And all they were doing is playing classical mu- music in the streets. Well, well you know, I like that, was- now, And I, I actually would like to ask both... Uh, Paul and Elizabeth, uh, these two questions. I know that uh, Oliver Stone has said that the invisible history is a serious and sobering study that illuminates a very critical point of view that's rarely discussed by media. And I think this question you're asking, Val, is rarely discussed by media. But Oliver Stone said, I know the results of this willful ignorance has been disastrous for our, our national well-being. And I'd like to just ask both Paul and Elizabeth, what can we expect next regarding Afghanistan, and, and what is the awesome significance for the world at large here? I think that what we're really looking at uh, in our world now, in, and really as a, a process that has been going on since the beginning of time, time being the first expression in human form of a story and a narrative that is left. You have to go back to Samaria and really begin to look at the fact that that we have been in a repeating cycle. And what that cycle seems to be repeating has to do, I believe, with leadership. Liz, what are we calling Samaria today? Um, What's the name of Samaria today? Samaria is Iraq. Okay. But is it just Iraq? It's the entire region. Okay, great. I just wanted uh, our readers to have a current reference, our listeners to have a current reference to that. Well, I thought that, you know, you might find this interesting. This is actually um, an expression that was written by a bard in Samaria. And I think it is some, it's quite sobering to hear these words today. Um, uh, in, in, Sumer, in Sumer became a sick society with a deplorable failings and distressing shortcomings. This is the kind of description that's going on, okay? And, the, and, as, and this is what was happening to Samaria. Law and order ceased to exist. 
Cities and houses and stalls and sheepfolds were destroyed. Rivers and canals flowed with bitter water. Seals and steps grew nothing but weeds and wailing plants. And the mother cared not for her children, nor the father for his spouse. And the nursemaids chanted no lullabies in the crib. No one... No one trod the highways or the byways, and the cities were ravaged, and their people were killed by the mace and lice and famine. Finally, over the land fell a calamity, undescribable and unknown to man. That was written 5,000 years ago about the disillusionment of the first civilization that left, that was able to leave its own story. Mm. Now, when you realize that what has happened is that, once again, the idea of reflecting, we're reflecting back and saying, what was it that happened? Not today, but then, that we're simply repeating. I believe it really is a crisis in leadership, because it is in the form of leadership where we actually can recognize what is really happening. I think that uh, we're living in a world today where many of our leaders are kind of in a dream state. They're not really awake to the world that we are living in. And I think, you know, the idea that we have the power in thought to cocoon ourselves, well, what we're seeing now is that our elites have managed to cocoon themselves very effectively, but they're not the first ones. No, they aren't. That's my point. And so that's why I believe it is a crisis in leadership that we are repeating over and over and over again. Every civilization has crashed the same tragic way. Well, you said something really very interesting on that um, Grail Work website. And the... It's very common practice for those of us that are upset with current proceedings to talk about the greedy bastards, you know. And But what you're alluding to on the website, that maybe it's not a bunch of greedy bastards per se, but that it's actually um, a historical plan to accomplish and create something that is related to the Holy Grail. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, you know, you have to think about, first of all, what the Holy Grail is. Uh, you know, at the Central Intelligence Agency, they don't call it the Central Intelligence the Agency. They call it Central Intelligence. You know, so-and-so worked for Central Intelligence. Oh, okay, got it. Okay? So think of it that way. Think of the fact that perhaps the Central Intelligence Agency, as we think of it as a government agency, really has a deeper agenda. That deeper agenda being... I mean, look at the things that are coming out of, of, of the computer, of the, of the, of the military-industrial complex that we live in the middle of, all the, the Internet and radar and satellites. And what is that doing? What are all those things doing? They're accumulating data. I mean, <clears throat> just 10 years ago, we would have been horrified at some of the accumulation of data and the you way in which it's being... You don't think we're horrified now? No, I'm saying we are horrified now, but the fact is is that it's incredible. I mean, you know, it, it, the way the banks, everything is going electronic. Uh, you know, in some places you can't even write a check. You have to, you know, you have to do it online. You can't go to the... They charge you to do it. What's going on with the airlines is an example. I tried to go to a restaurant and I'd forgotten my wallet and I had my checkbook and my driver's license. Uh-huh. They wouldn't accept a personal check. Exactly. I went to 10 different restaurants, not one of them would accept a check from me. I thought that was pretty amazing. Well, this isn't just in the United States. This has been going on globally, and it has been an approach for a very, very long time. I mean, it's almost biblical when you read some of the things in the, you know, in the book of Revelations about the, you know, the things that were going to happen at the end of time. And there's also old Celtic mythologies, too. You know, I do not have a good recollection of that. Why don't you give us one or two of these um, revelations um, after we come back from this break, because we're going to do diamond alignment right now, you guys. 
put this whole thing on a high spiritual track and then come back and give us some of the revelations that are actually beginning to show up now. And um, we're ready for Diamond Alignment. We live in a world that is more alive with possibility than ever before in history. Yet it is easy to get lost in the confusion and chaos of such an accelerated world. How do we stay connected and aligned with the unlimited potential that lies within us and soar in these exciting yet challenging times? Diamond Alignment, a sacred technology for the 21st century, offers high-speed connection and alignment with this divine power within, both convenient and profound. The six-minute multi-sensory diamond experience delivered via the internet clears your mind, relaxes your body, and creates inner peace no matter what is going on around you. The diamond alignment experience effortlessly keeps you charged with joy and equanimity and greater focus and clarity throughout your day. When you experience the expansive energy of diamond alignment, you activate the unlimited wealth and potential hmm. within Seems like a little bit of diamond alignment disappeared there, but that's not a problem. Go straight over to our website at wakingupinamerica.com. That's wakingupinamerica.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page, click on it, and you can hear it. And you can hear it there at any time at no charge. And if you want to hear the full program, um, it's a very reasonable amount. You could just simply um, click on the bottom of the website, and then you'll be headed right over in the right direction to find out more about this. I've been listening to Diamond Alignment for probably 10 years now, and I totally appreciate what... Jacqueline has put together here for us. We want to acknowledge the good guys that make Waking Up in America possible. We have Star Doves who sends out mailings of sixty to 100,000 um, people, depending upon the particular um, time. And those sixty to 100,000 people are the kind of people you want to be talking to. There are people of very high consciousness. There are people of action. There are people of possibility. And if you tell Ra that Waking Up in America sent you, 828-665-0411. That's 828-665-0411. You tell them you heard about it on Waking Up in America, uh, you'll get a discount. And you're going to like this guy's work, and you're going to have a great laboratory for testing things. You know, we, when we send out emails, if we change the heading on it, we'll get different responses from different people. So it's a good laboratory, and the rates are just Best I've found anywhere, actually, to tell you the truth. Now, let's say that you just can't hear another bit about any of this and you have to go to Mexico. Well, San Pancho is the place, and Steve and Diana are waiting for you down at Roberto's Bungalows with a room for you. Uh, it's a very short walk, two blocks to the beach, the most beautiful sunsets, the, a town with the kind of consciousness of 50 years ago before life got complicated. Charming, wonderful people, lots of Canadians and Americans down there. The health care is fabulous. The peso is 15 pesos to the dollar right now. So go down there and have some fun and um, tell them Val sent you. And once again, you're going to get that, that discount there. Now we're on the air today with Gail Ellen, 
who's um, in charge of beauty and international protocol for waking up in America. For people that are, I just, I feel like um, Liz Gould and Paul Fitzgerald are becoming my new best friends. I just love these guys. I think I'm recognizing somebody that knows how to talk about the things I haven't been able to articulate. We're actually inviting you to go over to their website, which is invisiblehistory.com, and also um, Grail Work, W-E-R-K, so G-R-A-I-L-W-E-R-K.com, and find out what this very talented pair of journalists are up to. And, Paul, just before the break, I tantalized them with the fact that you're going to tell us some of the things from Revelations. Well, I mean, you have a number of different things that are going on in terms of prophecy. You know, Revelation, Book of Revelations is considered to be a very odd book of the Bible because it's very inconsistent with a lot of the other books. In and, what way? I'm sorry? In what way is it inconsistent? Well, it's inconsistent in terms of the way it's written. It's, it's very fire and brimstone. It's very, all right, all right, everybody, you're going to get yours. You know, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of attitude about yeah. it. You know? And, you know, all these things about you can almost look at some of the things that were going on in the late 1990s, early 20th century in terms of uh, one of my favorites is the one about the, uh, um, uh, the, the verse where it, it talks about, I can't remember the chapter, but, but the, the verse where it talks about the, the cities burning and the, all the merchants will wail and moan. Uh, because the the world the economy is there will a, be no buyers and sellers. There will be basically. no buyers and sellers. Sounds like we're there. <laughs> you know that the world economy will suddenly catch fire, and you know, and there will be no, and, you know, and, and they will they will you know they will uh, uh, be very upset about this, and and so I mean you think about the economic calamities as we get more and more into this global economy and with this kind of uh, financial stuff that's been going on, this, this kind of casino capitalism that they refer to it as. Casino capitalism, I like that. Casino yeah. capitalism, right. It becomes the casino gets bigger and bigger and everybody gets brought in and, you know, and this is what happened, of course. Everything becomes a bubble. Everybody gets brought into the crap table and finally, you know, everybody loses and that's what's been going on. Uh, that's what, you know, a lot of people are very critical about what's going on with the Obama administration right now. Say more about that. Yeah, well, what they're doing is, is that you know they're 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 building up more and more of this. They're trying to restore the bubble instead of going in and basically and fixing what caused the bubble. Exactly, going in and looking at the root causes of this and, and making capitalism much more uh, affordable and much more viable to people. There's a well, guy actually, out there named Minsky, right? right. Okay, who is a very uh, there's been a lot of talk about Minskyism lately, um, and you're going to hear a lot about him soon because he he looked at he looked at uh, at capitalism. He's he's been dead now for about ten years, but but he was an economist that looked at capitalism and said, look at this is what you have to do to it in order to make it work for everybody, and uh, and those those ideas were not followed. In fact, up until just two years ago, he was considered to be obsolete and kind of out of date. Because what happened two years ago? Well, what happened? He uh, up until two years ago when the uh, financial crisis began, when finally began. Well, you don't right. mean it finally became when it finally began to make itself apparent. Apparent, right? And it, you no longer you no longer could avoid Americans, especially, could no longer avoid the fact that their house their houses now were devaluing. So that was the cash cow was gone. Uh, the IRAs and the um, you know, IRAs and all of that was was beginning to um, the, you know the stock market was going down. So the, suddenly the, the the reality was gone. But this is also, I think, part of the um, problem. This is a great quote from Lawrence of Arabia. Um, Those who dream by night wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may not 
they, they may dream their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. And this is really part of what we are living with in terms of the people who keep li- almost living in a dream, but it's, it's a private dream. And they, what they do is they find other people to support that dream. And then they disconnect from the common reality that we're all living in. Well, they don't, have a com- they don't have a reality that's our reality. Well, but what they, what they do, by controlling the economy, they literally create it. They, this, is, this is, again, when you go back and, and look at the kind of attitude the Anunnaki um, uh, leadership had towards men, uh, again, you know, going back to these ancient um, uh, writings, the first writings that, ex- that we at least have, have any a record of, that humans left the story of, the leadership absolutely showed terrible um, disdain for man, for the common man. Has there ever been a time, Liz, when art and beauty ruled? Well, I think that art and beauty are part of the entire process, but what you're looking at is, is the narrowing of the expression. That's really what the crisis is. That, and this is part of why I think the Internet right now is really allowing for a lot of people to feel that they actually can get out there and express themselves. You know, there's literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of websites that, that an individual who may, you know, want to leave a poem, you know, and feel that they're getting it out there. So the sense that you, you actually can get some kind of out there feeling is really, this is almost a, you know, a, 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 a new phenomenon. So many people have, you know, felt that their voice, and that's one of the reasons why we named our book The Voice, you know, the idea that, you know, that each person has a special voice. Voice, and that it's your own story you're writing. Your life is your story, but it's in organizing it. It's in giving it a beginning, middle, and end that you know it, it takes on the, the power of the word, the power of the form. And, and, and a lot of people haven't had the chance to, to connect to their own story, that, they, that it's a real genuine me that I am relating to, in, and, and, um, and seeing yourself in your story and then beginning to live it. And that is it. That's part of the ability to reflect back, to see the patterns, and to see where um, not just your individual life, but you know your larger sense of, of of you know your relationship going back, you know, to other generations and to you know whether it's your your genealogy, you know, in, in the in the voice we're dealing with the Fitzgerald family genealogy, going back to the 12th century uh, and the Norman invasion of Ireland. Um, but it does. How does the Norman invasion of Ireland affect us today? Well, there's a lot of um, <coughs> Anglo-Normans out there posing as Irishmen. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? How does that work? I don't quite understand. Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you go back, I mean, the, the Normans were actually French. They, they were actually uh, they were actually had come from uh, Normandy, Sweden, and Denmark, but uh, they had actually settled in uh, in uh, they had blockaded. Uh, uh, the Seine at one point, the river and uh, in, in France. And the king of France finally said to them, look it, if you stop raiding my ships and raiding my country, so I'll give you this province in the north of the country. And oh, so that, really? That, that's, that's how Normandy north... happened? And sorry? And that's how Normandy that's happened? That's how Normandy happened. That's where the Northmen, that was for the Northmen. That was where they ruled. And they became, they became, they had their own dynasties. They became, um, uh, they, they traveled all over the world in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries and 11th centuries to the 12th centuries in the in 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 1066 they were the ones 
who invaded uh, William the Conqueror was a Norman. Yeah, I do recall that part. Right. Well, there were various families. In fact, you can kind of Google Anglo-Norman names, and you'll find them very interesting. There's a lot of Irish names that you think are actually Irish that are actually uh, Norman names. So they came from Ireland and, and, and ended up in France. Well, no, they came from France. Or they came from France and ended up in Ireland. Okay, but once again, are we? Would the Holy Grail be considered? Uh... Hey, well, you know, this is all connects to the, the Clares, the Saint Clair, the Clares Light family. Uh, these are ancient bloodlines that go back that were involved very much so in the First Crusade. Very motivated, highly motivated. Um, these are all uh, connected to you know to various races. Uh, you know, there are claims that, that uh, I know Jim Mars has a lot, a lot to say. I don't know if you know Jim Mars, the author. Um, he, was, he wrote the book that uh, Oliver Stone uh, based his, his movie JFK on. Isn't he? Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got a really fascinating kind of background look at, at all these names. You, there are a lot of similarities in the names, as an example, between, uh, you know, the, uh, these, these Celtic Irish names and these uh, Sumerian, ancient Sumerian and Indo-European names. There was a big effort back at the late 19th century, early 20th century, to try to ethnologists try to bring, um, you know, try to peg uh, the origin of European society on, you know, on this Indo-European plateau. There was a big deal going on in the 20s and 30s with Afghanistan, as an example. Okay, uh, so I, I think I asked this question, but I've gotten confused about where we went with it. Uh-huh. Was there ever a time that art and beauty ruled? And, and as far as you know in, in history, is it just an illusion certainly that I have a, here? Or I would say happen? certainly not in our experience over the last, uh, not in terms of, um, not, certainly art and beauty has not been an aspect of patriarchal, hierarchical society. That's for Of any society, do you know it as, did it ever work in any society? Did we ever, I've always had this dream that this is what it takes, except I I don't know where there's a society that, that has accomplished it, well, unless it's Atlantis or something like that, but I don't even know if Atlantis did it. Well, apparently, well, I, I, I do think that what you see is, again, in terms of what, what can be expressed artistically is very much uh, a result of economy. And I think that what you might be connecting to is your own belief and desire that we will move into an economy that is going to allow for a far more... Uh, you know, kind of uh, a flourishing of art and expression that can come in any number of forms because so many more people will be able to connect to that way of expressing themselves. So it won't have to be, uh, you know, in, in other ways that may, uh, you know, be part of the crisis that we keep repeating over and over again in terms of our social structure that we have lived, you know, for the last, you know, thousands and thousands you of know, years. You know, back during the Elizabethan era, there were men like John Dee and Raleigh and these men who, who were very much an aspect of, of uh, secret societies. They had a, a school called the School of Night where they studied some of these ancient mysteries. And uh, you know, it's been argued that a lot of the books, as an example, that uh, the, the ancient scrolls that came out of Egypt and that came out of Rome that were uncovered during the Middle Ages were interpreted by Christian monks. And a lot of the information that was stored in there, there's been a big controversy over that. There was, I don't know if you're familiar with, I believe it was called the Bloomsbury Group. In, 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 I'm not. In, in Britain. 
you know, T.S. Eliot was, um, was one of them. Um, uh, John Maynard Keynes was one of them. These were intellectual thinkers in Britain in the late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, they, they came to the conclusion at one point, and you can Google around for some of this stuff. I'm, I'm not sure it was years ago that I looked at it. But uh, there were discussions with this, within this group uh, back in the 1920s and the 1930s when both communism and, and, and fascism were, were threatening to take over the world. And there was this violent confrontation between the two at the, before World War II. That something had gone wrong in the interpretation of the medieval monks of these ancient scrolls. Huh. That they had somehow, the, the learning that they had let out or the way in which they had misconstrued the writings of Plato and Aristotle and the ancient Greek thinkers, who themselves had been passing down this ancient wisdom, had somehow been misconstructed so that when the course of history finally got to the 20th century, it was all going wrong. The perfect society, the society that you say is of, of, of art and beauty, uh, suddenly was no longer um, possible. It had all been concretized. It had been materialized and brought down to its lowest common denominator. Well, it's interesting, Paul, because I'm remembering... Gail, are you still on? Yes. Okay, because I'm remembering the Renaissance, okay, which seems to me like a blending of art and beauty and then also of the master plan. Would that be true? Well, yes, of course it was. This was a case in which society was finally using this information and the information itself was creating a new kind of reality. Just like what's happening now. I mean, you've got so many people on the Internet. You've got so many people communicating from different countries. That 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 in and of itself is a threat to the existing order. That's always going to be the case. I was hoping it was. (laughs) (laughs) There's a couple of things that I thought were going to happen, and the Internet just went... Wow! Right, and these global conversations showed up, and I went, "Thank God for the internet," because I think that would have become reality like a hundred years ago. You know, well, you know I think my question here would be more with the uh, art and beauty and music aspect was something that Paul had mentioned before in in terms of consciousness and balance of consciousness. So when we have those things uh, in our education system. It enhances the individual, not necessarily. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's not taught in the school. I mean, they're not even doing physical education classes in a lot of the schools but now. Exactly. But this is, the, this is what's so interesting. The very first thing that's cut every time. Art, beauty, and, educa- art, and, and physical. And, 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 and anything that it's meat and potatoes and, you know, arithmetic and, re- you know, and that's it. And so, you know, whether you just, you know, we all know what happens when you only eat meat and potatoes. Well, yeah. the same thing happens when you only study, uh, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, the same exact thing happens, and that imbalance sets in. Um, and it does seem to have a very concretizing effect, whether it's on your intestines or whether it's <laughs> on your thinking. And I want to bring up another point uh, regarding what Paul said about the interpretation being changed and the books being changed. You know, it's noted that when um, the English went into India, they paid uh, Max, uh, I forget his last name, but he was uh, a literist who they paid millions of dollars to go in and actually change the history of Hinduism. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Change all the books, destroy all the books, change all... I mean, this is noted, so, I mean... 
there's lots of evidence where you know our history or interpretation of history has been has been uh, a, a, you know uh, done done uh, in exchange and changed as to what it really was. So the same thing was, of course, done in you know in the Spanish conquests of uh, of Latin America. Uh, in the, Meso- libra- the library at Alexandria mm-hmm. was completely- yeah. Did, who burned the, that library? Uh, Alexandria. Who burned it? Uh, well, it was it was claimed that um, uh, Christians burned the library at Alexandria because it contained too much information. Yeah, you but know? there's also rumors that many of the documents were spirited out and have ended up in the Vatican. So, oh, I believe that. <laughs> but you have to realize, too, that you know, at the time that that would have happened, the Christians would have been a revolutionary movement. Mm, right. You know? was, what's also interesting, though, is it would give the, the Vatican an absolute fabulous opportunity to steal everything and say it was all burned. Well, that, I think, is a tactic that really has been used over and over. Yeah, I've seen that before. And I absolutely believe that. But, you see, I also think that we have to realize, and when I'm using the word we, I mean those of us who are not in on the, the, you know, the elite secret-taking process here. Um, Number one, I think that we really all have come from a common common experience through dreams uh, and uh, that is really uh, is a method of of interactive communication that we are all a part of. Oh, I love Jung, too. Internet internet really is an externalization of what we really have all come from, but we've lost touch with it, that's all. I think I, I just don't want to leave the British as being total bastards, even though they're close. Uh, when I was in India, one of the things that struck me is I went from building to building. There were little plaques on the buildings, a lot of them. And the little plaque would be, you know, like bronze or copper or something like that. Or, And it would say something like, thanks to Major Higginbotham, uh-huh. <laughs> they would actually have rebuilt the the. The armies in India actually went through and rebuilt a lot of the things that had fallen apart. So while they were taking apart history in one part, Gail, they were actually building up the edifices in another part. And I don't know if that's been common practice all over the place. Well, you have too. to realize, you know, this is this is a process. You have to think of it that way, you know. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, mostly the late, you know, the 1870s, 1880s, when the Russians were moving down from the north and the British were pushing in from the uh, south and, uh, and, and uh, into Afghanistan, there were a lot of what they referred to as the, uh, you know, the South Central Asian Khanates, the Khans that ruled those areas. There was slavery. There was a lot of cruelty going on within those societies. There were aspects, there were parts of India where the slave trade was very, very active. And, you know, there were a lot of local, uh, local people who, when the Russians came in or when the British came into their areas, they put a stop to all of these old practices, and they were very thankful for that. So it, you can't really completely look at it. I mean, it, it had its time period where for, you know, for perhaps uh, maybe 50 to 100 years, it was looked upon as an advance, as, as, as an advanced culture coming in. And, and someone told us once, they said, you can't think of the cultures of the, of the ancient world as third world nations. That's one of our problems from our perspective. We can't look at them as being basically underdeveloped or undeveloped countries. We have to look at them as very sophisticated civilizations that are in the last stages of their decline. Well, the interesting part is if you look back on the surgeries and things like that, they were doing stuff in South America 
2,000 years ago that we haven't measured, that we haven't equaled surgically. And I would have to say the same is true Egyptian-wise as well. Well, the Egyptian thing is really quite fascinating. I mean, you have those, uh, what is it, the diorite, I believe. It's a stone. It's that hard, hard stone Mm -hmm. out of which the, uh, uh, the, you know, in in the Great Pyramid that uh, that the king's coffin is made out of. And they know that they were drilled because they have the cores that they drilled the rock with but they don't have the drills which they drill them with. <laughs> so, and, and these are the kinds of things, you know, to, to bring it up to speed, I mean, that's the kind of thing that we didn't have the technology in the West. Uh, the modern technology hadn't developed the kind of drills that could drill into diorite. I believe it was until the 1940s and uh, the 1950s. So how did they do that? Where yeah. did that come from? Well, is this a time to mention extraterrestrials or not? Well, I actually have another theory. Yes. I think that what we came out of was a communal uh, mind, and I think what we're living today is an individuated mind, and that's why so many fantastic things were, were emerged, you know, but, but in order to, you know, replicate that as an individual, you can't do it as an individual, so it requires a whole new way for human beings to interact to bring back the power of the communal mind, but actually being an individuated person. There so when do you think that, the communal mind lived, and when did it disappear, and did our well, community I go think, along with it? Or? I think that it was, we were born, I think, uh, you know, in that part of the idea of the dream, that there was some kind of a, uh, a, common, a common, and it may, be, may have been through the dream itself, that humans really felt genuinely connected to each other. And that was where the communal exchange went on very actively. And when are you suggesting that occurred? I think that it went on probably well. I think the evidence of it is um, is in the is in the, there's a um, one analyst, Gene Gebzer, um, believes that the idea of consciousness was born about one and a half million years ago, and that really yeah, and that there are big spans of time where humans lived in what he described as an archaic state. It's almost like being completely asleep. You're not really awake at all. Dim, very dim. And then we went into what he referred to as the magical realm, where there's a little bit more of an awakening. But again, it's a communal awakening. You're, you're, you're more like the way you, we imagine, at least, that a tribal community exists where you're really connected as a group, and each person feels very equalized to the other. There seems to be, uh, but yet there's somehow a unity, and, and it is expressed in these ways. But in terms of the evolution of consciousness, that may have taken place over a period of hundreds of thousands of years, this magical state. And as you get closer to the time of, you know, going, coming up to um, the, uh, the beginning of the Greek civilization, you had a mythical state emerging. And the, and, and the I'm sorry, I lost that for a minute. So. Mythical. You and before the mythical was the cultural and then the... Yeah, and, but it also in, involved, you know, in, in the creation of the mythical archetypes and, and identifying, again, we know that according to people like Jung and, and Joseph Campbell, that the, that the idea of these archetypes is common to all civilizations. Well, where do they come from? We all have a common dream language. So this is where I believe we all really communed at one time in the emerging, you know, human experience. And then as we began to move around the world and then live on the world and live, you know, somewhat separate lives, you know, over thousands and thousands of years, you know, we began to lose touch with the, the larger communal mind and then that shrunk to the local communal mind. And, and, but in terms of the, the last phase that Gebser talks about is actually um, uh, the mental realm, and that would have been at the time of the Greeks. And that's when the mind and body separated. And, 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 what do you think and, caused that separation? Was just natural? 
Well, it was an idea, and it was it was an idea that uh, apparently uh, burst out of thought. But so, you know, how did it happen? Well, it, you know, it very well may have been a recognition of, of what had already happened. In fact, in many ways, consciousness seems to be more a recognition of what has already happened than, uh, you know, than really... Um, Being present in the moment of the happening. Yeah, yeah, like when you're present in the moment that you're in, you don't have time to reflect. Well, you've, done some, you've brought up something interesting here because when I think about it, actually my most of my standards, and I don't know if this is true for you, Gail, or not, but most of my standards of art and beauty probably go back to Greece. And yes, yet there I was would just, say so. And there was a lot, but there was a lot of really heavy stuff that went on in Greece too. Yes. You know, incest between the gods and people killing each other off and all of this stuff. So has there always been that art and beauty on one side and mayhem and greed or political need on the other side. Well, go ahead. It would seem that, um, you know, what we seem to see repeating over and over again is, is, a, is, is a, a breakdown, which really is just the cycle of life. I mean, when you really think about it, you know, we know that this is what consciousness gives us, the ability to know we're going to die. I think that is a literally a, 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 you know, a showstopper for, you know, for humans, you know, and it, we've been plagued by it. I think that's we've a been, very that's funny way of looking at death. <laughs> that's what the prophecies are all about, is that the end. And why is the end bad? Because we're scared of it. That's why. It's bad because we're scared of it. So, very interesting, huh? I mean, well, back when I was in London and I went to the British Museum, because I'm always seeking out art and beauty, I've been to the Louvre and stuff like that, and I have to tell you, I've had my mind blown a number of times by the magnificence of what people have created, you know? Uh, in the Louvre, I had to touch Michelangelo's slaves. I, I couldn't help myself. And then when they were telling me to get off the slave, oh boy, I'll bet. Did they have a camera there when you did that? I was wrapped around the slave's leg, okay? And the French guard is over trying to peel me off, and I'm telling him I don't understand French, which is like exactly what he was asking me to do, but I want to... I wanted to extend that moment that I had a hold of the slave's leg just a moment longer. And I did, and it remains one of the memorable moments of my life. I never knew sculpture could be alive. Have you ever seen the movie The Russian Ark? I haven't. Oh, you must see it. You must, yes. You must, you must yes. rent it and, and view it on, on DVD. It's, it's a fascinating story. It's in Russian, but it, it, it involves the Winter Palace and a ghost. Oh. <laughs> well, send me an email on it, and I'll go check that out. So then I hop over to London, right? And I'm, I don't know how you are on trips, but in those days, I always had enough to pay the import tax going back into the country, and that was it. I had four cents <laughs> left. And I'm in the British Museum, and I look up, and I see Aphrodite. Uh, the, uh, the head of Aphrodite that had been fished from the Aegean Sea like how many thousands of years before and they had actually covered it <clears throat> in bronze and the one thing I said to them was do you take American Express? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that's what I'm looking for in life. I'm looking for a way to balance what it is that we're doing. I'm looking for a way to move countries, have consciousness um, and I think that the work that all of the people on this program are doing this amazing. Gail, I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate the stand you are for art and beauty. Liz Gould and Paul Fitzgerald, they've been playing our music in the background, and I've ignored it because I wanted to say this to you. I love you being here. I, I cannot tell you how important what I think you're doing, and I need to let people know that this program has been brought to you by the Golden Hearts Foundation in association with Kirkgaard Media, our radio partners, KoninCompany.com, Mona V, Max GXL, 
Dr. James Murphy in memoriam. Thank you to the team at Voice America and to Bent Migan for the theme music, Already Almost Ordinary People. It's in the background there. Next week, invite a friend to listen. And go visit Liz and Paul at InvisibleHistory.com and also GrailWork.com. And that's G-R-A-I-L-W-E-R-K. And thanks for being here. Thank you for Thank having you. me. I love and it, you the guys. The time you spoke them We're almost ordinary people With extraordinary plans Thank you for joining us today for Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. Waking Up in America can be heard live every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Time on voiceamerica.com and Valerie welcomes all emails at heavenincorporated.com.